Welcome to Bridal Love Ministries podcast with Poppy Hopeflish teaching on Song of Songs. Hallelujah! God is good all the time. In our previous sessions, we identified with the shepherd girl Salome, who was destined to become a bride of Christ. And so am I, and so are you. It's interesting that Satan even copied this prophetic picture of Jesus and his bride. It's a shame that people, even good people or nominal Christians, know that in Satanism they are brides of Satan. But they do not know that they were born to be a bride of Christ. This is the time to set things right, I believe. If only I had known 50, 60 years ago that I was born to be a bride of Christ, how different my life would have been and how different my choices would have been. So let's return to Salome. She met her shepherd king and she fell in love with him. He watched over her seasons of spiritual growth. In chapter 1, she experienced winter as she slept the sleep of intimacy when he drew her away to the king's chamber. There she learned to trust him. In chapter 2, the season changed into spring. It's the time for worship and new adventures. He invited her to come with him to the nations, but she declined. She did not feel ready. So he left her and he went to the mountains of Betar. Betar means separation. In chapter 3, she missed him so much, she decided to follow him after all. When he returned from the wilderness, she recognized him, and she pointed him out as a king to her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem. In chapter 4, the season changed to summer. She became his garden, bearing much fruit. She became a fountain, a well, a river of living water. He came to her as the good gardener, and he pruned her so that she will bear even more fruit. He enclosed her, and she became his enclosed garden. Then he taught her many things, such as love, trust, covenant, boundaries, spiritual warfare, and friendship. She now obeys him in everything he asked her to do, because she knows him. She knows him as a good shepherd, as the joyful gazelle, as the glorious king, and as her good gardener. She failed many times in trusting him completely, but every time he loved her into wholeness, accepting her no matter what. So now, in chapter 5, she must pass another test. For he comes to her as the man of sorrows, the man of Gethsemane. He comes to her in his weakness and pain. So let's listen to the text of chapter 5. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? 
My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I rose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart went out to him when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me, they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved? that you so charge us. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among ten thousand. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, like banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Revelation 3.20 Beloved, the more you grow to love Jesus, the easier it becomes to keep the door of your heart open to Him. Every born-again Christian knows and experiences the constant companionship of the Holy Spirit. There are no strings attached. Holy Spirit is faithful to assure you of your salvation and to teach you about Jesus. But... The experience of the manifest presence of the Lord is different. It is different because it's conditional. Your spirit must become sensitive to it, and this comes only by practice and training by the Holy Spirit. Salvation results in a new creation. Now your spiritual senses start to respond to His presence and you become quick to invite him into your inner chamber, the king's chamber, the holy of holies. In chapter 4, the bridegroom visited his bride in the garden and had a feast. And the bride is so full of that precious time, she would prefer to take some time to revel in the memory. So she repeats chapter 2, when she just wanted to stay in the cleft of the rock. But the bridegroom once again has other plans. He has come to her as a gazelle, the shepherd, the king and the gardener. But now, in chapter 5, 
he will reveal himself to you as the man of sorrows. So he knocks at the door of your heart, and he calls you by every pet name he has for you. He's asking you to invite him in. He describes his condition to you. He says in verse 2, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, and my locks were the drops of the night. The bride is physically sleeping, but she's also resting in the Lord. When he spoke, she recognized his voice immediately, because she's got to know it well from all the times you've spent together. Your spirit responds immediately to the sound of his voice. And even though you are physically still half asleep, you know it's him. He comes to test you. To see if you actually meant it when you surrendered yourself to him in chapter 4. When you called the north winds of suffering to come and blow over you. In Proverbs 8.17 we read, I love those who love me, and those who seek me early and diligently shall find me. The Hebrew for early there is immediately. So when he comes, when he knocks, you must immediately invite him in. The Lord will approach us at times when we feel it is inconvenient. He knows exactly how to choose these times such as the lockdown time because of the coronavirus. Now he has you to himself for many, many days. And as far as the day is concerned, he loves to come at night, somewhere between 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Such nighttime visits from him are very special. And you as the bride should be quick to answer them. For he desires a bride who will welcome him anytime and who will go with him anywhere. Beloved, are you there? Do you welcome him anytime and will you go with him anywhere? If not, this chapter will help us to do that. This time he's not peering through the lattice as in chapter 2. No. He comes and boldly announces his presence by knocking on the door of your heart and talking to you. He calls you by his pet names for you. My sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. It is fitting that you should ask him, what is his pet name for you? Mine is my poppy. He always say to me, my poppy. A friend of mine said he calls her my, my flower, my bloom. If you don't ask, you don't get. Of course he's got pet names for you, loving names for you. When he comes, he reminds you of the intimate times you've had together, so that you will be quick to open when he comes. He also calls you my sister to identify with you as a human. He calls you my love, 
because he wants to remind you of his great and patient love for you. He calls you my dove because you've learned to focus on him. You've developed dove's eyes, therefore you are his dove. And he calls you my perfect one because he knows and sees your heart. He sees that your only desire is to obey him, although you fail. This does not mean that you've achieved perfection. We all know that. What makes us perfect in his eyes? The fact that we want to. We want to follow him. We want to obey him. And the fact that we ask him to help us to be obedient. That makes you perfect in his eyes. Never forget that. This means the motivation in your heart is simply your sheer love for the bridegroom. You're not motivated by fear of punishment or performance or legalism anymore. You see right through that. It's only your love for him that keeps you going. The bridegroom's head is wet with dew and his hair is soaked. That's a reminder of what he looked like in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tonight, beloved, he's come to ask you to choose. To choose to walk this road of struggle and suffering, both with him and for him. His desire is that you will take up your cross of humiliation and rejection and stripping of all that's precious to you. He knows what he's asking. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, we read, And being in agony of mind, he prayed all the more earnestly and intently that this cup may pass. Yet not my will, Father, but your will. And his sweat became like great clots of blood dropping down upon the ground. He understands when your prayers becomes an agony of the mind. He understands when you pray all the more earnestly and intently because he's been there. He knows there's life after Gethsemane. So identify with him in this. When you struggle with your own humiliation, your rejection, the fact that you've been stripped of all that was precious to you. He comes to you as the man of sorrows. Remember, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He bore all our sorrows. Do you still carry some transgressions for which you did not receive forgiveness yet? Give it to him tonight. He was wounded for that. He paid for your sins. Are there things in your forefathers, in your bloodlines? Iniquity of the bloodlines? He was bruised for that. Give it to him tonight. Are you a woman of sorrow tonight? 
a man of sorrow, many sorrows that burden you? Give it to him tonight. He wanders around in the night. He's looking for someone, a bride, who will open the door for him. Do you feel like although you're locked up and in your mind you're wandering alone, looking for someone who will listen to you, who will comfort you? He's right there with you. He's knocking on the door of your heart now. He wants to come. He wants to comfort you and identify with you. For he doesn't come to you now as the glorious king. That wouldn't help you. He doesn't come to you as the gazelle, joyful, overcoming every mountain. He comes to you as a man of Gethsemane because he identifies with you. He presses on her feelings of compassion and love. He's saying, please, please open for me, my sister, my love, my perfect one. He pleads and he waits. He's actually pleading that you will not turn away from him in your sorrow and depression and broken heartedness, but that you will turn to him and open the door. But the bride fails the test. And this gives us hope that even after everything she's learned, she still fails this test. So that gives you hope for any tests in future that's waiting for you that you may fail. He won't reject you. He'll just let you write it again until you pass it. So in verse 3 she says, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? She finds it's very inconvenient now. Too much effort. And in doing this, she fails the test. Her spirit is willing, oh yes. She recognized his voice with joy. But oh, the flesh is weak. And this wounds him very deeply. And he turns away. He had a very special time in mind for you. He wanted to take you into the king's chamber again. But she was not willing. In Hebrews 3, 7 to 8 we read, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, I want to say, Tonight, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As happened in the rebellion of Israel, and their provocation and embitterment of me in the day of testing in the wilderness. See, when Israel were tested in the wilderness, right where you are now, they hardened their hearts, they rebelled, and they got bitter. He does not want you to go on that road. Verse 4, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. The bridegroom leaves his anointing behind. He leaves myrrh on the handles of the lock, and she is deeply moved. The King James says, My bowels, the inner depths of her being, were moved for him. It's her spirit 
The spirit is reacting, but the flesh is weak. So she arose to open, but it's too late. She suddenly remembers that this is the hand that held her head, remember? His right hand fights for me and his left hand works in secret. He helps you. His left hand is under your head. She also remembers the holes in his hands from the nails. This makes her change her mind. She hurries to open for him. She smells the myrrh dripping from her hands and she yearns for him. However, she waited too long. He has left. This does not mean that Holy Spirit left her. The Spirit is always present for every child of God and helps us to work out our salvation. But the physical manifestation of His presence is when He comes to you as a person with His intellect and will, His emotions, passion and personality. He longs to have personal fellowship and communion with you tonight. He wants to share his perspective of eternity and his plans with you. This is how he wanted to reveal himself to her. This is what he has withdrawn now. However, the anointing, the evidence of his presence is still there. So when she opened the door and she felt the myrrh in her hands, it means that she still received a handful of the blessings that he wanted to shower over her. You see, that's that feeling when you know he was there and I missed it. We know that feeling, don't we? Previously, she would have been satisfied with this, just the myrrh, the gifts that he would have given her. But not anymore. She's not after the gifts, the anointing, the myrrh. She's after him. She seeks him now for who he is not for what he can do for her or give to her anymore. The opening of the door, even though it was too late, will cause her some death to herself. The myrrh on her hand is proof of that. But it is also preparation for your ministry. The king of the universe, the one who said, I am the door. Beloved, he stoops down to knock on the door of your heart, to plead with you, to open for him tonight. See how he loves you. The bridegroom is sensitive to rejection, not rejection by the world. He died for that. He paid the price for that. But he's sensitive to rejection by his bride. When she rejects him, he really feels it. And he will leave if his knock is not answered. Remember, he's a gentleman bridegroom. He will not force himself into your heart. Verse 6. So I opened for my beloved, but my beloved turned away and was gone. And my heart went out to him when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him. But he gave me no answer. She regrets it bitterly and she starts going after him immediately. But her search is fruitless. She calls, but he does not answer. She does not understand this because his behavior is contrary to his character. 
and this is exactly what compels her to seek him now with her whole heart. In Jeremiah 29.13 we read, Then you will seek me, inquire for, and require me as a vital necessity. That's where she is. And you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. In Jeremiah 33.3 he says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things, fenced in and hidden, which you do not know and do not distinguish or recognize and have knowledge of and understand. He says, call to me and I'll answer you. Now she's calling him, but he does not answer. He wanted to show her great and mighty things tonight. Things that are still fenced in and hidden. That's the secrets of God. Things that she does not know or recognize or have any knowledge of and understand. When this happens to you, you failed. You did not open the door. You could not get that download. Don't go and park at that. Ask forgiveness and ask him to please come again. I asked him, Lord, would you set the bed on fire that I will be so uncomfortable that I will get out of bed? And I tell you, he does that. In Deuteronomy 4 verse 29 we read, But if from there you will seek, inquire for and require as a necessity the Lord your God, you will find him if you truly seek him with all of your heart and mind and soul and life. It's almost like the commandment. You must love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and all your strength. Then you will seek him like that. She only needed to ask forgiveness and ask for a second chance. But she's so desperate she's not thinking straight. Instead of returning to her inner chamber, she follows the same pattern of chapter 1 again, namely to go to the streets and ask the help of others. Verse 7, she says, The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. The watchmen, the fathers of the city, represent spiritual authority in the city and in the church, usually they have authority in both, the city and the church. The watchmen have no understanding of this intimacy with the bridegroom. In fact, they feel threatened by the intensity and the passion of her search. So they want to put a stop to it. The watchmen, which means they decide who enters and who does not. They decide which ministries may function outside of the church and which may not. And she, to their liking, is functioning outside of the structure of religion that they have. So they strike her and they wound her by calling her a false bride, a sect. Others mock her in her search. She is struck down by those who were supposed to protect her, those with whom she was in a relationship. She's being betrayed. Jesus also walked this road. They called him a liar. They said he was possessed by a demon. And he was betrayed by his friend, Judas. And he was wounded in the house of his friends. Psalm 55, David prophesied this. Let's read it. For it's not an enemy who reproaches and taunts me, 
then I might bear it. Nor is it one who has hated me, who insolently vaunts himself against me, then I might hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together and used to walk to the house of God in company. They tortured and crucified him, but they could not erase the manifestation of his presence. So when you walk this road, you are identifying with Jesus. They can torture you. They can call you a liar. They can say you're demon-possessed. They can say you're part of a sect. They can say it's all in your mind or you're out of your mind. Nothing that they say is able to erase the manifestation of his presence. Then they remove her veil, the bride's veil, her spiritual covering is taken away from her. She feels as though she has lost her whole inheritance in Christ, namely the joy of his presence, the pleasure of serving him by serving others. Suddenly you're not allowed to serve anymore. She's not permitted to do any of these things. So she starts doubting God's promises and every prophecy that she ever thought came from him now plagues her mind. She stands naked before God and man. And the Lord allows all these things. He wants to expose a deeply rooted, undiscovered weakness in her spirit. Issues such as pride and self-centeredness he watches how she handles the situation. He will deal with the fathers of the city, her brothers, himself. But the question that he asks you tonight is this. Will you go with me to Gethsemane? Will you serve me just for my sake alone? Even if you lost everything and everyone for my sake, my love, would you still be willing and content to just be mine. Many years ago when I had depression and I was talking to the Lord about this and those of you who have walked that road knows all the questions that you ask. I couldn't read, I couldn't teach, I couldn't minister and I was just not functioning and I said to the Lord, you know Lord I feel like a cabbage. And then he waited a while and then he said, well, then you're my cabbage. See, I came from a background that I had to perform to show him how much I love him. Suddenly, from my perspective, I couldn't show him my love anymore because I couldn't perform. And I couldn't be satisfied or content with just being his cabbage. I had to do something. Praise God, I had to walk that road to realize, to just know that you are His. is all that He wants from you. Would you be willing and content to just be mine? If so, tell Him so tonight. And as far as the watchmen of the city, the spiritual authorities are concerned, He's asking you, Will you still love the body? 
even though they that were supposed to be your veil, your covering, they've wounded you because of me, because of your intimate relationship with me. How will you deal with this, my bride? Will you become bitter? Or will you be able to say, Lord, even though this hurts, I will stay for your sake. What she is actually trying to say is this. If you turn away from the body of Christ because they abused you, misunderstood you, mistreated and wounded you, then you are turning away from me. Once when we were in a situation like this, I was complaining to the Lord and I said, Lord, I hate this structure. He answered me, My love, you may hate the structure, but keep on loving the body. See, I always then still thought that the church is the body. The church is everyone. The church is Jesus. I did not understand the body of Christ is much larger than just the denomination we were attending at that time. The body is where two or three are together in his name and you pray. And the moment you start to pray, you hear what's going on in each other's spirit and you know we are part of the body of Christ. We are both brides. You hear it because what's in the heart, what's in the spirit comes out in testimony as they pray. How you will deal with this situation, beloved, this test, is very, very important. In Proverbs 4.23, we read, Keep and guard your heart with all vigilance and above all that you guard, for out of it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart. If you don't guard your heart, a root of bitterness will start. Luke 23, 34, we read, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and distributed them by casting lots for them. See, that's the only prayer you can pray in times like this. Father, forgive her. Father, forgive him. He knows not what he's doing. She knows not what she's saying. It's either what people say or what they do or both. But you have to forgive both. And you know what? Stephen, the first martyr, he heard Jesus praying those words at the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. So when they stoned him to death, what was his last words and prayer? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. If we enter a time like this and we have to endure persecution, will that same prayer come from our lips? I believe if you stay in intimacy with him as his bride, it will come because he fills your inner being. If you do not forgive and you stay in bitterness, Hate will come in, and hate is a spirit of murder. And criticism will come in, that's also a spirit of murder, murdering another one's character. 
And when these little roots start to grow, the more they grow, the more your spiritual sensitivity to his spirit will diminish. Let's see what she did. The bride of Song of Songs pays no attention to the watchman of the city. She's now ready to suffer for him if need be. If only she could taste his sweet presence again. Do you see what happened, beloved? She's still the shepherd girl. She still fails her tests. She didn't arrive triumphantly, I'm now ready to suffer. She just endured the suffering as long as he will come to her. And that's where we need to get. No matter what, if only I may taste his sweet presence. She's so desperate she humbles herself by asking her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, whether they have seen him. This is ironic. They've never even been in the king's chamber. They have no idea of intimacy. They've no idea of the manifestation of his presence. And yet she asks them. They do not understand her desperate search, but they now become interested. Verse 8, she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I am lovesick. She's not angry with him for withholding himself for her, and neither does she seek him to complain to him. She does not say to them, if you find my beloved, tell them, I've been hurt, I've been struck by the spiritual authorities, they did this and this and this to me. No, she says, if you find him, tell him I am lovesick. She's only got one desire, one goal, and that is to find him. She says she is lovesick. She does not look down on the daughters or judge them. She has overcome the wounds she received at the hand of the church. This proves that her motives were pure from the beginning. She only lives to please him. The daughters are surprised that she asks them. They have been watching her. They know her. She worked with them in the vineyard. Then she disappeared. And then when they saw her again when the king arrived, she was beautiful. She became strong. They are admiring her strength now. They admire her devotion in the midst of this difficult situation. They notice that she does not turn away from him, but only search for him all more desperately, and this impresses them. So in verse 9 they ask, What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? The daughters do not know him as she does. They act a little bit like the woman at the well whom Jesus asked for water. In John 4, verse 10 to 12, remember? The woman at the well. And then Jesus asked her if she would give him some water. And she said, why do you talk to me? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. 
And then Jesus said in verse 10, He answered her, If you had only known and had recognized God's gift and who this is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him instead and he would have given you living water. He is inviting her to ask, but she does not understand. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, no drawing bucket, and the well is deep. How then can you provide living water? Where do you get your living water? She is actually mocking him. Where will you get this living water? She does not know he is the living water. And then in verse 12 she says to him, Are you greater than and superior to our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well and who used to drink from it himself, and his sons and his cattle also? She's asking him, oh, Do you think you're greater than Father Jacob? That's actually what they're asking here. There's many beloveds. What is this about your beloved that you are so desperately, passionately searching for him? When they ask her this, it leads her to remember who he is. And she answers them. She describes him. And as she describes him, she's restored to her position in him. Because that was what she lost. Verse 10, she says, My beloved is white and ruddy. He's chief among 10,000. He's brilliant and radiant white. We read about that in Revelation 4.3. He who sat there appeared like the crystalline brightness of jasper and the fiery sardius. And encircling the throne there was a halo that looked like a rainbow of emerald. He is radiant. She has come to know him intimately. She knows that there is much more to the awesome glory of his presence than that which she is currently experiencing. And she realizes that her earthly body cannot see the fullness of his glory without perishing. My beloved, by now you should know that too. We want to see the fullness of Jesus. But our bodies can't endure this. Every night after we did a podcasting, the whole team feels like that. We sleep the next day and we are tired because we felt his presence right here in the room. The manifest presence of Jesus. And your body cannot hold it or contain it. Moses understood this on Mount Sinai. We read about that in Exodus 34. But the Lord showed his back and covered him before he showed his presence. Otherwise, Moses would have died. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, they understood this. The one moment he was in his human form and they could talk to him and touch him, and the next moment he was glorified and they fell down afraid they were going to die. But in the New Testament, the bride experiences something of the same when the bridegroom comes and sometimes he showers her with his glory in the form of gold dust or oil on the face or the hands and it fills her with amazement. Both of these physical manifestations of his presence 
are wonderful and they build one's faith. If you haven't seen this before or experienced it, ask him. Ask him to bring the fragrance of his presence so that you can become acquainted with the smell of his presence, his fragrance. Ask him for this gold dust. It's just a way of showing you that he actually is the king of heaven. He lives in the city with the, the streets that's gold. Maybe it's the dust from the streets he's just treating you with. Ask him for the oil. The oil of the anointing on your hands or on your forehead or wherever. When you see this and experience this, it's wonderful and it's holy and it builds your faith. She says he's ruddy. Ruddy means red and healthy, like King David. She says he's the chief among 10,000. He knows warfare, as we read in Isaiah 59, 16-19. So as the result of the Messiah's intervention, they shall reverently fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. And when the enemy shall come in against you like a flood, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, will lift up a banner, a standard against him and put him to flight. He will come like a rushing stream which the breath of the Lord drives. She understands something that he is like a marching army all by himself. In verse 11 she says his head is like the finest gold. His head, his hands and his feet is all made of gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. The head of gold represents his leadership and his authority over everything. Ephesians 1, 19-21 tells us. Ephesians 1, 19. So that you can know and understand what is the immeasurable and unlimited and surpassing greatness of his power in you and for you who believe. And it's demonstrated in the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, even the coronavirus that's all over the world. He is far above that, far above every title that be conferred. Not only in this age, the church age, and in this world, but also in the age and the world which are to come, the peace reign, the thousand-year peace reign. His leadership and his authority cannot diminish. It's been there, it was there, it is there, and it always will be there. She's beginning to understand he is the only one who can handle full authority wisely and justly. Just look at the leaders of the world, the leaders of different countries, how hard they try to get full authority. And once they have it, they become dictators, always. 
But Jesus will never become a dictator. He is worthy to be trusted. Please give him full authority over your life. His hair is long and thick and black and wavy. That's a picture of his total consecration unto God. The long hair is set apart for God. His authority and his youth. The black hair. He's full of energy and passion for his task. He is as bridegroom forever young with his long black locks in contrast with the ancient of days who's got white hair, white as wool. Verse 12. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. He has dove's eyes focused on his bride. Imagine, beloved, you have dove's eyes focused on him and he has dove's eyes focused on you. Don't let anything disturb that. He radiates purity of heart and his eyes are sharp and wise because his seven eyes represent the seven spirits of God, which we read about. Hebrews 4.13 it says, And not a creature exists that's concealed from his sight. All things are open and exposed, naked and defenseless, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 we read, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Right now in this crisis we are in, beloved, the eyes of the Lord are still running to and fro throughout the whole earth. And in every country that is suffering with people who have the virus, people who are dying, the Lord will show him strong only on behalf of those whose hearts are blameless towards him. If they do not have this, if you do not have this, if you turn away from him, you are foolish, you are a fool, and you will live in wars. In Revelation 1.4 we read about his eyes, and John says, I greet you in the name of Jesus and from him who is, who was, and who is to come and from the seven spirits, the sevenfold Holy Spirit before his throne. Do you now understand the power of his eyes locked on you? In verse 13 she says, His cheeks are like a bed of spices, like banks of scented herbs, and his lips are lilies, dripping with liquid myrrh. The bridegroom's inner beauty shows in his emotions, his cheeks, his pomegranates. His emotions is like fragrant spices and like perfume. When they plucked out his beard, a lovely garden of spices and herbs was opened to us at that moment. Isaiah 50 verse 6, he says, I gave my back to the smiters 
and my cheeks to those who plucked off the hair, and I hid not my face from shame and spitting. That's what he endured. They pluck out the hair on his cheeks. They shamed him, and they spit in his face. And he said, I did not hit my face from that. He endured it all for you, his beloved bride. The more pain he suffered, the more he loved his bride. Now do you understand his emotions for you? Isaiah 55, 10. His lips represent the power of his word. Remember, God is all mouth because he is all word. What does he say in Isaiah 55? He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from the heavens, and return not there again, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and sprout, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, without producing any effort, or be useless. It shall accomplish that which I please and purpose and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Every word he has spoken over you will be fulfilled. If not in this dimension, this life, then in the next one. You may even leave this dispensation the church dispensation and some of those promises and prophecies and words that he gave you are not fulfilled. Then it will be fulfilled in the peace reign when we rule and reign with him. In Psalm 45 too we read, You are fairer than the children of men. Graciousness is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Remember, you always say everything that's said about me, I want to say about you. He want graciousness poured out on your lips. In Luke 4.22 All spoke well of him. They marveled at the words of grace that came forth from his mouth. And they said, But is not this Joseph's son? How can it be? We know him. The same applies to you, beloved. The words of grace and love and wisdom will pour forth from your mouth. He promised it. And people will look at you, shepherd girl, outcast. Who are you to speak like that? We know who you are. We know your father and mother. We know where you come from. But you see, when you enter intimacy with the bridegroom, your speech will change. And people will pick that up and react to that. Some interested. Some rejoice. And some will mock you. In John 6, 63 we read, It's the Spirit who gives life, for He is the life giver. The flesh conveys no benefit whatever and there's no profit in it. But the words, the truths that I have been speaking to you are spirit and life. You see, the flesh can suffer like Stephen the first martyr suffered. 
But what came out of his mouth came from what was inside in his spirit. And your spirit, if it gives life, it will be in your words. That's why your words will have life. That's why we say, what do you speak, life or death? Because it actually comes from your spirit. That's how important his words are. That's how important your words are. And in John seven forty-five to 47, we read, Meanwhile, the attendants, the guards, had gone back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why have you not brought him here with you? The attendants replied, But never has a man talked as this man talks. No mere man has ever spoken as he speaks. And the Pharisees, the watchmen of the city, it's the same, the religious cult, said to them, Are you now also deluded and led astray? Are you also swept off your feet? Can you hear the jealousy? Can you hear the anger? They feel threatened. They can't speak like that because they do not have the power of the Holy Spirit. Because they do not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. They've only got religion. And then they speak of God. Which God? There are many gods. Only the God of Abraham and Isaac, they will reply because they're Jews. And when we say, what that God of yours have a son. His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah. They will stone you like they did in the Bible in those days. And they will do it still today. In John 4 verse 18 we read, There is no fear in love. Dread does not exist. But full-grown, complete, perfect love turns fear outdoors and expels every trace of terror. For fear brings with it the thought of punishment. And so he who is afraid has not reached the full maturity of love. He has not yet grown into love's complete perfection. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit deep into intimacy, there cannot be any place for fear. For fear brings with it the thought of punishment. And he who is afraid has not reached the full maturity of love. O oh God, may we tonight reach the full maturity of love. For perfect love drives out all fear. And we can only mature in this through intimacy with your Son, Jesus Christ. His lips are red lilies. The blood, the liquid myrrh dripping down his lips, is from the blows that he received on his mouth. Isaiah 53 verse 5. We've spoken about that. In verse 5 verse 14, she says, His hands are rots of gold. Set with beryl, his body is carved ivory, inlaid with sapphires. His golden hand speaks of his godly character, his works and power. And the stones of beryl refer to the delicate, precise work of a jeweler, setting a stone in a ring of gold. All God's works are precise and thorough. Deuteronomy 32.4 He is the rock. His works are perfect, for all his ways are law and justice. He is a God of faithfulness, without breach or deviation. 
Just and right is He. We sing that song, ascribe greatness to our rock. His works is perfect, all His ways are just. He's a God of faithfulness without injustice. Upright is He. The stone of a turquoise color represents financial prosperity as well as wisdom, inspiration and the blessings of God. His body is all shiny, carved ivory, a sheer masterpiece of art. The New King James Version uses the words belly and bowels to refer to the place where your spirit responds. It's the seat of your spirit. She says her beloved is a man of strong emotions. She understands it now. His heart is full of compassion for the weak and for the sinners. John 11.33 we read, When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews who came with her also sobbing, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He has emotions. Matthew 14.14 When he went ashore and saw a great throng of people, he had compassion, pity and deep sympathy for them, and he cured the sick. Exodus 34.6 and 7 The Lord passed by before them. And he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, keeping mercy and loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I always think of this scripture as Jesus' CV about himself. His body is inlaid with sapphires and their brilliant blue color represents revelational knowledge. Jesus Christ is God's revelation of himself to the world. Therefore God's emotions and the different sides of his character are precious, pure and inspiring to behold as we have seen so far in chapters 1 to 5. And the bride, I and you, my beloved, we must be trained by Holy Spirit to read his emotions and to respond accordingly. This is also how he will develop a heart for the lost and then he can tell us of his sorrow over those who die in sin. Verse 15, his legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His legs are symbolic of his walk with God and the administration of his works. He has a finishing mentality and the marble represents his strength and beauty. He is immovable, invincible in his strength. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. His golden feet represents his godly character and his works. He is pure gold all over. In Revelation 1.15 we read about his feet that glowed like burnished bronze as if it was refined in a furnace. This copper represents the judgment of God. And his countenance, the full greatness of his full presence, it fills the room like the mountains of Lebanon. This is the impact he has on his bride. When he makes his face to shine upon you tonight, you will be filled with a peace that surpasses all understanding. 
Receive that, beloved. You, the bride, in contrast with Moses, you will see his glory with an unveiled face and then you will reflect his glory even more and you will still be in the process of being transformed from glory to glory. In Acts 3.19 we read, Repent therefore and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Every time you experience His manifest presence, you will be refreshed. Acts 3.19 The manifestation of God's presence strengthens you physically. It brings healing and deliverance. It increases your faith. And it increases your capacity to love Him. And it sharpens your spiritual sensitivity to Him even more. Verse 16, she runs out of words. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, He's altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The bridegroom's mouth is sweet because she tasted His kisses in chapter 1. The bridegroom constantly wants to enlarge your capacity to receive him. He wants to make more space for himself within you, beloved. When Holy Spirit touches the spirit of man, your spirit, the ecstasy thereof is greater than any other physical, emotional or intellectual enjoyment. The bride summarizes her description. She calls him altogether lovely. Everything about him is attractive. He's radiant and glorious. There's no one like him. This man that she has come to know is totally different from the one presented to her by those who were religious. She's now able to describe in, in him in detail because she now knows the difference. And then she also adds, And this is my friend. In John 15 verse 14 we read, Jesus said, You are my friends if you keep on doing the things which I command you to do. Any other friend can and will disappoint you. Any earthly bridegroom can and will disappoint you or may even leave you or forsake you because he's only human. But Jesus is the only one who will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never fail you because he's not a man that he should lie. That's grounds enough for you to trust him at all times. The bride has spoken with much love, emotion and urgency. She describes him intimately because she knows him intimately. She has taken courage over the five chapters to describe him in such detail. Her mandate given by him is to stir the other daughters just enough so that he can continue with the rest of the wing process himself. This happens in chapter 6. 
because in chapter 5 verse 9 they asked what is your beloved more than another that you so charge us and after she described him in verses 10 to 16 they asked where is he that we may seek him with you that's what chapter 6 will be all about this question posed by the daughters of Jerusalem, who is he, is parallel to Jesus' question to his disciples in Matthew 16, 15, when he asked them, what does the people say, who am I? And some said, oh, some say you're a prophet, others say you are Elijah who came back from the dead. And then he asked, but you, who do you say I am? He's asking you tonight, beloved, who do you say I am? Please answer him tonight. Tell him who he is to you. Let's read the statements of the blood. The blood of the man of Gethsemane, the man of sorrows. The blood of Jesus has redeemed me from the hand of Satan. The blood of Jesus redeemed me from every curse. In Christ Jesus I am free from every curse and blessed with all blessings. I shall be blessed in my place and my affairs shall be blessed. I shall be blessed at my work and the fruits of my labor shall be blessed. I shall be blessed when I come in and I shall be blessed when I go out. The Lord will cause my enemies who rise up against me to be defeated before my face. They will come at me from one direction but will flee from me in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on my bonds and on everything I put my hand to. And the Lord my God will bless me in the land he is giving me. The Lord will establish me as his holy people. Then all the people on earth will see that I am called by the name of the Lord and they will fear me. The Lord will grant me abundant prosperity. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on my land in season and to bless all the work of my hands. So I will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. The Lord will make me the head, not the tail, and I will always be at the top, never at the bottom. The blood of Jesus has sealed an eternal covenant for me. The blood of Jesus has reconciled me to and granted me peace with God the Father, all people and all creation. The blood of Jesus has granted me forgiveness of all my sins. The blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses me from all sin. The blood of Jesus justifies me from all condemnation, so all the accusations of the devil against me are nullified. He makes me righteous as though I have never sinned. The blood of Jesus sanctifies me and consecrates me. So I become belonging to my Lord, dedicated to him and set apart for his ministry. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience from acts that lead to death, so that I may serve the living God. The blood of Jesus 
makes me enter the most holy place to serve the holy God. The blood of Jesus grants me victory over Satan and all his principalities. The blood of Jesus is the reason for my everlasting rejoicing. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you.